Welcome back to The Fleet, the number one industry podcast for fleet managers and their teams. I'm your host, Albert Chow. As every manager knows, when you implement fresh systems, new requirements, or updated protocols, employees, they're just not ready to conform right away. Nowhere is this more true than in fleet safety. Changing old habits is hard enough. Now imagine if your boss tells you you have to change your habits. Oh, and also, we're going to install a camera in your car and make sure you indeed are changing those habits. Would you want to listen? Managing safety and mitigating risk isn't easy, and it's even harder when your company's culture and mindset isn't open to those changes. As longtime CEO of Jetco Delivery, and now Executive VP of the GTI Group, Brian Fielko has decades of experience not only leading and running fleets, but helping transform fleets inside and out. And as Brian shares today, creating a culture that promotes safety and accountability starts with the people behind the wheel, not just the technology under the hood. On today's episode, Brian joins me to talk about what it means to build a safety culture, how to empower drivers through that culture, and technology's role in it all. Plus, stay tuned for the weirdest item Brian's ever had to deliver. That and more on today's episode with Brian Fielko. The fleet is brought to you by our friends at Lytics. Whether you manage a fleet of five vehicles or 5,000, Lytics is here to help. Lytics fleet dash cams are powered by best-in-class machine vision and artificial intelligence, designed to help commercial fleets and drivers operate more safely, efficiently, and profitably with the industry's most comprehensive and customizable fleet management platform. Go to lytics.com slash the fleet to learn more today. That's L-Y-T-X dot com slash the fleet. Welcome. To the fleet. On this episode today, we have Brian Fielko. Brian is the CEO of Jetco, the trucking company that was recently acquired by the GTI Group. Brian, welcome to the show today. Thanks, Albert. It's a pleasure to be with you. All right. Let's take listeners through your journey because it is an interesting one. You started off as an attorney and then you quickly got into, I would say, heavy machine operations. I don't know how to best describe your next role at the Peltz Group. Talk about that transition. What were you doing as an attorney? What made you decide to change fields and what made you choose the field that you chose? Yeah, sometimes there's just a a lot of coincidence and serendipity. So I began my career practicing corporate law. Uh, This was in Milwaukee and um, got to know a lot of uh, great business people. Our firm specialized on middle market, entrepreneurial companies. And one of my favorite clients, the group that I got to know very well was in the recycling business. It was a second generation family company. And they were looking to um, bring in the chief operating officer. And, you know, I had been practicing law for about six years at the time. And I always looked at the other side, right? The business side. Like, I want to do what they're doing. Um, it's not that I didn't like law. I, I enjoyed it, but I wanted to try my hand on the business side. And they gave me that opportunity. And it's one I've just been forever grateful for. So getting involved in recycling has got me involved in heavy industry, right? Trucks for collecting the material, um, uh, balers, plant equipment. And, and that, that sort of began the journey. Outside of just advising the group, you didn't really have that much experience. When you walked in day one, what were you thinking? Like, this, this, oh, this is a bad move or this is a good move. How much did you feel like you fit in or needed to learn? Like, how's that experience? How did that change overnight? Well, having worked with this group for uh, a long time, I knew I would fit in culturally. They knew me. I knew them. I was on their board. So I had more 
insight into the business than just contracts or something like that. I didn't know the business and I was scared out of my mind. I mean, you know, I knew I could practice law, um, but when I succeeded at this role, it's a great industry. It was a tough industry, but we developed a transition plan and uh, everybody in the company pretty much was uh, very generous with their time and, and brought me along. So I asked a lot of questions and, and the learning curve was um, much steeper than you think on the outside looking in, but it was great. So at the time you're working at Peltz Group, how many vehicles were you, were you overseeing that you had the responsibility of keeping track of, making sure everyone was operating them safely uh, and so forth? Well, at Peltz, it was, it was vehicles and plant. So, um, you know, the company probably had about 250 employees and maybe at, at the back at the time, and we're, we're talking in the 1990s, it had about maybe 40 some odd uh, trucks and trailers. And we had all sorts of trucks, uh, you know, the Packard, you know, roll off trucks, uh, kind of the garbage trucks that you see and then, and then semis. So the diverse fleet. Um, and then, you know, you're, you're, you're focused on the recycling plant, which has its own set of responsibilities to, for operational excellence. And so I was pelts from, um, 1996 to, uh, 2002, and that's when we sold Pelts Group to Waste Management based in Houston. And so then this pattern seems to be repeating itself here. You were working, you worked at Pelts, you got it to a successful state, improved its state, it gets acquired now by Waste Management. Now how many vehicles and plants and things are you looking after now? Oh my gosh, Waste Management. <laughs> um, I, was, I was executive vice president of their subsidiary, their recycling subsidiary. At the time, it was called Recycle America. And, you know, what? I don't want to guess the number of vehicles and plants because anything I would do would be pulled out of the air. But it was a, obviously a national scope. Um, and again, responsible for, for operations as executive vice president had P&L responsibility. And so we took what we learned at Pelts and we were able to apply it on a much broader scale and team up with just a great group of people that waste management had. So. Fast forward now a couple more years after that, you decide this is now, you're now in 2005. How did you transition over to Jetco? I can't say enough good things about waste as a company, but what I can say is that I probably wasn't cut out for a 55,000 person company. I, <laughs> I enjoyed being, some, being in a business that was more entrepreneurial, maybe more privately held. So you get to the situation Albert, where, you know, I, I mean, when, when I transitioned from law into the pellets group to the recycling company, now I know that I did things to um, help the pellets group get better and we made the company better. But I walked into a company, fortunately, that had succeeded for many years and they were on a trajectory for more success. So at some point you look in the mirror and say, okay, I know what I accomplished, but could I do it by myself? Could I do it on my own? And that was really my goal coming out of um, waste management was to find a company that was small enough that I could buy. I like to use the thinking that it was small enough that I could buy it, own the majority of the company myself and grow it organically. And that's what I found in Jetco. It was started in 1976 by four brothers and it just got to the point back in 2006, where they had to either double down and reinvest uh, or sell. You know, it was just a stage of life, both for them personally and for the company itself. And I just 
met them at the exact right time in, in my career and their career. So we, um, I bought Jetco. In fact, one of the things I'm the most proud of is that one of the brothers, the primary founder, he still works with us. So um, yeah, it's the longest six-month consulting agreement in history. Guinness Book of World <laughs> Records. Um, you know, I think buyers a lot of times come in like they're the smartest guy in the room and they, they chase all the knowledge out the door. I've seen it time and again. We didn't do that. You know, we we took the best of what was at Jetco, and then we built on that uh, over the years. So the reason why I want to take our audience through this journey is because it's to me it's a, it's a fascinating one, right? Where you're in a different industry, you're taking over companies, you're working, you're scaling, you're at a bigger company, but now you're kind of you you personally you've pushed the reset button because you you have a gut intuition here that you can do it on your own or want to push yourself and see what you can do. When you took over as Jetco CEO, how many trucks did it have? We probably had in the high 30s, maybe. And the company was maybe about $5 million a year in gross sales. And by the time we sold it to GTI, we were close to $50 million a year in sales, 140 trucks and you know, uh, a significant non-asset, like a brokerage business on top of the uh, core trucking businesses. So that's tremendous growth. You're talking about 10X in revenue. You're talking about, you know, 4X plus in vehicle responsibility. Talk to me a little bit about what it means to build a successful trucking company. Because to the outside world, it just means, hey, you have a truck, you take product A to point B, and if you do that, you get paid. How hard can this be? This sounds easy. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Pretty simple business, right? <laughs> Anything yeah. but. Uh, I, I know somebody that was in the banking industry and they got into trucking and they said, I thought banking was regulated. <laughs> Tr- trucking, I mean, you're managing clients. You're managing very sensitive, important cargo, right? So you're taking care of their cargo. You have a responsibility above all to be safe to your employees, to your clients, and to the public. So you've got to run safely. Um, you've got all sorts of moving pieces. You've got the human element, right? Loads changing, schedules changing. You get, you get somewhere to pick up cargo, and all of a sudden, the description is wrong. So you have to start all over for what you're picking up. There are so many variables. It's an incredibly complicated business to do, to do things right. Um, and, and it took a little while to, to learn that, but I just kept focused I knew and I know that we could grow the company several different directions, but it was very disciplined in how we we're going to get there. And let, let me expand. First on the entrepreneurial side, we took a business, Jetco, and we really created at Jetco, um, for all practical purposes, three businesses. We created uh, an intermodal business, which is import-export, you know, containerized cargo. And then we created a flatbed heavy haul business for oversized cargo. And then I mentioned the brokerage business. So, you know, those three businesses are what I focused on at first. Now we've bolted on a a dedicated dry van operation. Uh, And then in 2016, we acquired a company in Dallas. Now it's called Jetco DFW. So we expanded our reach there. So business is very diverse. And so that was the entrepreneurial part. I didn't necessarily go in there in 2006 and say, this is what we're going to do. But over time, I kind of studied the business. It didn't take long to figure out in trucking, you don't want all your eggs in one basket. So diversifying our types of business, 
diversifying the niches in, in terms of the industries that we serve, that, that was critical. But the basics, right, the basics are important. Really, it doesn't matter if you're in trucking or what business you're in. For us, it was people, right? It, that was the beginning and the end. We had to have the right people. And over time, we've worked with a number of people that were in place and they, they've grown. And then we brought in a lot of new people uh, that helped us take the company in new directions with new thoughts, new ideas, uh, unconditional commitment and focus on uh, a diverse, diversity, a diverse group of uh, leadership. For trucking, your people are the most important part for them, the fleet. We renewed the fleet. So we, we run a younger fleet. We're an EPA SmartWay partner and then technology. Um, and so you put those three things together, the right people um, and then the right equipment and then the right technology and along with technology as process, that was the foundation. That's, that's how we did it. And, and we really have never wavered from that as our fundamental game, game plan. The question really is which direction do we want to take the business and deploy that game plan? So the thing I'm really curious about hearing your perspective, since you have such a, you know, your, your experience spans so many years is one of the biggest evolutions in the industry has been two parts, right? You mentioned regulation, right? Which yeah. is increased costs, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> costs have increased significantly. I understand whether it's fuel costs, insurance costs, like, can we say that insurance is never going to go down again? Like every, every year, your insurance budget, I think has to increase. Is that accurate? I think for the industry, we're going to continue to see insurance rates go up. Um, yeah, uh, ours, ours haven't necessarily gone up in certain areas. Um, other areas, they have gone up. But the insurance market and the litigation market, you know, the, the litigation environment, I should say, are tightly interwoven. So you, you've got mm-hmm. a situation with just, you know, higher and higher settlement costs relating to truck accidents. You know, people who think, well, that's why I have insurance um, are sort of making a mistake because, with that attitude, you won't have insurance. I mean, insurance is your last resort. You have to yeah. focus on what you can control, which is your safety culture. I'm convinced that over the coming years, you're going to continue to have a widening gap of winners and losers. Um, and the winners are the in ones the, that invest in the trucking industry, in the trucking industry, the winners are the ones that invest in their safety culture and, and make safety the cornerstone of their operation. Does that mean they're going to be accident-free for the rest of their lives? Of course not. I mean, there, there's risk in what we do. But the more you focus on it, the more you can practice prevention. And, and that is a hardcore business proposition. And I think a lot of trucking companies really are getting it. I think the ones that don't get it and kind of think, well, safety is a department or safety is an expense, that attitude is going to – the market's going to wash it out. They're not going to be able to buy or afford, or afford insurance. It sounds like the margin, like you just said, the margin and the growth is going to be found in your ability to stay safe, avoid litigation, avoid insurance claims. Like that's where all the margin and growth is going to come from, or it's going to be a significant part of the growth for any business going forward. Yeah, it's going to be a significant part. It's going to be a significant part. How, how well you manage risk and how deliberate and intentional you are about risk management, I think will say a lot about whether you survive and thrive. And this is where we can start talking about a lot of interesting things about how our society and culture are changing, right? On one hand, I think COVID has changed, you know, it's accelerated e-commerce. E-commerce was already popular before, but now it's going to become even bigger. So more and more people are going to be used to getting products and services delivered to them. So like 
the amount of goods, let's say, moving on the roads on a mile, like total miles moved is probably, we can fairly say it's probably going to increase in the next year, next 10 years. Would you agree or disagree with that? I would agree that a lot of focus will be on that last mile, getting the goods from your, uh, from a distribution center to your house. I, I just, that was building way before COVID, but I think a lot of people tried it out in COVID and said, well, that's not, not so bad. Um, you know, I've been, I've probably been uh, an early adopter of uh, not going into too many stores and, and, you know, getting to know the UPS driver. Um, but I, I think that that's here to stay. But even for some of your flatbed business, right? I mean, because I, because we talked about, we know I got to meet a little bit earlier, but I talked about how I had, uh, I bought a new treadmill, which is something that maybe I didn't consider pr- prior to COVID, right? I didn't need or consider bringing the fitness industry to me. I've read articles about how the fitness industry is exploding. And now a lot of the stuff in fitness is heavy. So they depend on people like Jetco potentially to bring this giant treadmill and rig to their garage so they can set it up. So even your home deliveries theoretically are going to increase, aren't they? Um, I think home deliveries will increase again, whether it's in a van or a flatbed just depends on the cargo, but and it's not just home deliveries. This trend is clearly COVID related, but you know, with people not traveling, they're spending their money on uh, things at home. So when you buy, when you build an addition to your house, or you buy a new appliance, you know, that requires trucks. Vacations don't. So I think that that's going to continue. We're going to see people spend discretionary income on things that require trucking, things that are delivered to your house more than uh, a beach vacation for at least for at least a little while. Uh, hopefully that resets itself and we get back to some yeah. semblance of normal. But people through COVID have understood how truck how important trucking is. I mean, you know, we were stocking grocery shelves. You know, during the beginning of the pandemic, March, April, May, think about some of the shortages out there. You know, trucks were right in the middle of that, trying to remedy the shortages, and it's very much of a backbone industry. So there you go. You're you're more miles on the road, more fleets in operation, delivering all the time, whether, like you said, they're small van all the way to the actual flatbed trucks. Talk about a little bit about how technology has made it, because you have adopted a technology first mindset. You have actively, like you said, reinvested in fleets. Uh, there are some certain companies, I think, that maybe you mentioned before, they're not as interested in doing that. You've invested in safety. You've invested in technology. Talk about those investments. What does it mean to invest in technology? Because I think for a lot of people, they hear this and they think, well, what do you invest where? What are some of the impacts? Because like you've gotten a chance to see what it was like having road safety as a, as a, in the 90s to new introductions of distractions with cell phones. We'll get into that. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm pretty sure distracted driving is now here to stay. So for, <laughs> you're, you're going to need more tools to protect yourselves against distracted drivers. But I'd like to hear your opinion on the evolution of what it means to build a safe fleet. Let's, let's deal with the elephant in the room first. Uh, I'm not worried about driverless trucks. I'm not worried about no human beings in, in the trucks. Um, maybe someday. But once we've got a driverless infrastructure... Uh, we can talk about no human beings in the truck, but well, well, the truck is next to my family and your family. There will be a human being in the truck. The odds of that being any different are this. Would you be comfortable getting on a plane with no pilot, even though you know that technology is a lot of the flying? That's where I see technology going in our industry is technology 
in, in cab, in the truck, is going to do nothing but redefine the driver experience in a positive way. Whether it's, you know, collision avoidance, ro- you know, rollover um, technology, lane assist so you keep your lane. Technology is redefining and, and really making driving fun again. So we need to look at technology as, as a way that the, the industry is in the midst of transforming itself in a good way. Um, let's not look at technology as a way that's going to push the human being out of the truck. Maybe someday, but I think you and I will be on a beach somewhere retired by the time that happens. But I don't think it'll happen in my lifetime uh, in, in a meaningful way. So I think that when you look at technology and integrate it, and apply it towards safety, your ability to manage technology deployment is really just a function of your ability to manage change. When you think about it, technology integration is nothing more than change management. Anytime you have change, you've got fear. I think a lot of companies miss that. They miss the fact that fear of technology and fear of change are the same thing. You have to be empathetic to that fear, but it doesn't mean that you're going to let that fear guide your decision. I've seen people say, well, we're not going to make an investment in our fleet, for example, in cameras, because I'm afraid my drivers will quit. Number one, they're not going to quit. Number two, you can't let fear motivate you because it's such a powerful investment to make that if you let fear motivate you and not make the investment, you're basically sort of playing with your safety performance. Cameras are the lowest cost, highest return investment that we've ever made. But the reason people get it wrong, like I said, is they're motivated by fear. But then on the flip side of the coin, People sometimes dictate it, right? It's a top-down decision. It's a board-level decision. And then you go to your front lines and say, here are your cameras. That doesn't work either. I think what you've got mm-hmm. to do is you make your decision, but then you bring your front lines in. You start a beta group and you get some people together. Say, will you help me trial this, right? Don't force it in all in one day. Let people run with it for 90 days and get a group of frontline employees. Those are the ones we forget about. The more we remember our frontline employees, the more they can be partners with us in adopting technology and giving us an honest assessment of its effectiveness. And I think that's what people miss is that it's all about change management. And if you can manage change, you can integrate technology in your company's culture. So I want to go on to two things that you just talked about and you dive a little deeper. The first thing is you made a mention that the camera was one of the lowest cost, highest return, or it is the, not one of, it was the lowest cost, highest return investment that you've ever made. I want you to dive into that. What makes you say that? Well, I say it just on, you know, a handful of accidents that we've had that I I can guarantee you we would have been paying out big insurance um, settlements on. But because I had the video, you know, we were absolved. Um, I had one that was particularly bad where our vehicle rear-ended another vehicle on a freeway. So, you know, when you have a rear-end accident, normally you're at fault. (laughs) Yeah, I would assume that. And the accident reconstruction would have said we rear-ended the other vehicle and and therefore we were at fault. We had the camera video that showed that the other vehicle cut five lanes over in front of us. I mean, like, if the car could have driven sideways, it would have. Um, and we had nothing. We had nowhere to go, and we couldn't stop. Uh, 
and for, you know there was a it could have been horrific there was there was a baby in the back seat of the other vehicle hope and everybody walked away that's what's really important but the point is that that would have been a six figure settlement in normal times that the only reason that we were able to settle for zero is that we have the camera video and i've got others that's the most dramatic but when i say lowest cost highest return Statistics will say that the professional truck driver is at fault 10% or less of the time. Well, my, my camera technology and my, my, my videos will say the same thing. I'm judging my ROI based on what I know I would have paid out in this crazy litigious world we live in. But also on a day in, day out basis, fortunately, we're not having to use the camera technology for too many accidents, but you, we use it every single day for coaching, right? So we're all human. And technology, if you have trust in your organization, if, and if a driver makes a mistake, you don't use that, the video camera to discipline them in a normal, honest mistake situation. You sit down together, you review the game t- tape like you would review it with a good athlete and say, all right, what happened here? They normally coach themselves. They normally coach themselves. So it's been a great coaching tool also. Every excuse that I've heard not to deploy a camera system, you know, whether it's cost or my employees quit, will quit or any of that, I've got a counterpunch for. Um, it just, it, it makes no sense to look the other way on, on an investment like this. Again, especially in the, in the insurance and litigation market that we operate in. So when you guys implemented, when Jetco implemented these cameras, you didn't see any change in turnover there wasn't a mass walkout like people talked about like or said ah people are going to leave the the fear culture as you mentioned that didn't happen for jetco did it did you see it have an opposite effect did it cause drivers to stay longer because they felt that they had the support of the organization well we had our beta group our trial group working you know we had a few i don't know if they were incidents or i don't know if they were incidents or if they were roadside violations but you know drivers were absolved during the trial period so just like good, bad news gets around, so is good news. It's like, hey, this thing helped me out. Now, we had four people that were trying to stage a little, a little revolt over it, and um, <laughs> their, their time with us came to an abrupt end. You know, that's part of the reality here is you can't win them all. Don't, don't try to win them all. Don't try to bat a 1,000. It's not going to work. When you embark on fundamental change, whether it's technology or any other change that you want to make, you're, you're not going to win them all and, and, and just get that out of your head. Um, so yeah, we, we lost a few, but we gained a lot more. No, that's great to hear. So that, that beta group, that beta test did you mentioned a couple drivers, they're absolved because in a previous environment, maybe they don't, there's not evidence or like you said, the evidence would suggest that they were at fault, but because the camera technology is present, they're not at fault and that absolves them. Did it quickly, like you said, the good news started spreading. Did other people just start, hey, Brian, tapping on your shoulder. Hey, how come I don't have a camera on my, on my vehicle? <laughs> Talk about how it permeated through the, the culture. By the time we installed the cameras, um, so we did the beta group, right? Then we had small group meetings. Uh, and then the members of the beta group spoke at the meetings and said, all right, I've been running this for 90 days. Here's what I see. And, and, and so peer-to-peer had more credibility among my team than I ever would have had. So um, we did it just right. By the time we put the cameras in, it was pretty much a non-event. But I mentioned the technology is a reflection. You know, if you can manage change, 
you can manage technology, but trust is a big thing too. One of the fears that people have of cameras is the old big brother, right? I'm going to yeah. spy on you. Yeah. And I have better things to do than spy on people, really. <laughs> um, but if we would have said, no, we're not, we're not going to use it for that purpose, and then we would use it for that purpose, we breached the trust. So we, we were very honest about how we were going to use the cameras uh, and how we weren't going to use them. And that was more for coaching in the case of an honest mistake. And we've honored that commitment every day for over five years. So now the fleet's completely updated. Training programs are going on. Did you, from where you were sitting, could you tell like something had happened? Like the business has improved materially over this period of time. You don't feel it overnight, but you look back at it over a period of six months and then over a period of years, sure you do. Because as we're talking about our employees and insurance, litigation and all that, we've also got to keep in mind our customers. Our customers are the ones that pay our way. And customers, at least the best customers, care about safety in a way that they many didn't used to care about it. In other words, they're really auditing their carriers. They're checking out their carriers. So you find yourself competing in a more exclusive environment where maybe client X used to say, well, whoever's got the cheapest price gets the load. Now what they're saying is we're going to only work with a vetted group of carriers. And once you've, met, once you've been vetted, once you all meet the same criteria, then we'll worry about price. So it lets you compete with the best of the best, which is where you want to be. You don't, you don't want to compete with, you know, a uh, trucking company that has, you know, only every other tire is good, right? I mean, you can, you, you can run your business for a while real cheap and it's real ugly. Uh, and, and I don't consider those people my competition. I, I only, the only people I consider my competition are, are the companies that run to the same standard as I do. And I'm proud to compete against those companies. Again, the clients that really care about that, they care about their cargo, they care about safety generally. Those are the clients I want. I don't know if you can actually name names, but I'd love to hear like what industries they come from, because this is fascinating to me. I, I mean, I don't think most people realize that when it comes to getting like for if I'm a big brand, right, I want my order shipped from A to B, that I'm putting safety standards on the logistics company. I mean, I think that's absolutely they should. I didn't realize that they were like, what kind of companies are doing this? You name an industry and there will be best and worst players in those industries. So whether you're talking about food, chemicals, whether you're talking about intermediaries like freight forwarders, some really get it and they really vet their carriers and others, it's just all about price. And, you know, it's clear that if you invest in safety, uh, you don't want to compete as much on price. So it's a matter of finding the customers, clients, and the prospects who share your values. They have a shared culture. It's not just safety, right? Safety is just one thing that we've been talking about, but there's other important aspects of the shared culture too. So the more you can train your business people to find those clients, the better success you're going to have. But you've, but you've got to make those commitments and safety to get, to get into that league um, and, and, and de-commoditize yourself. I mean, trucking, some people feel is a commoditized business. And I guess any business is commoditized if you let people commoditize you. Um, your, job, your job is to stay ahead of it. And, and again, what I have found is that safety is at the foundation of all operationally excellent companies. And it's a core differentiator that will help you set yourself apart from the pack. You mentioned something casually, 
I think is insane that you mentioned that there's actual chemical companies that will not put safeties where like not have these high expectations of people. Like I can't, it's boggling my mind. You're tra- transporting most of the time I'm guessing dangerous chemicals. I don't know. There are literally companies that are, even though they're transporting or need something moved for them that is potentially dangerous, they're actually putting bids out on lowest price. That's kind of scary. Yeah, it is. And you know, my, my, my point is that the supply chain is so diverse that if right. you get, if, you know, let's just let's just think about it without naming names. I can if we think about the top five chemical companies in the country, right? They're, they're all best in class. I mean, they're all doing right. it just right. But now think about how many distributors and subcontractors and independents there are. Um, it's not it's not as even as you would think. So I wouldn't want to give anybody the impression that that the big chemical manufacturers aren't doing that because any of any of the household names that you and I could think about, I, I know for a fact they are. But yeah. I'm just trying to say that in any vertical you want, you know, food, chemicals, whatever it is, you, you've got better players and then you've got players that aren't, aren't so good. And you want to align yourself with the better players um, because they're the ones that will um, appreciate what you do to protect their product, to protect their name. They don't want their cargo laid, laid out over the side of the road. And I think that's critical. No, that makes total sense. So let's bring it now to like present day. So you've been in this industry for quite some time. You've had successful, you've bought and built businesses. What keeps you still going? Like you're still in the game, right? You're now handling things for GTI Group. What is it about this industry that you just love? My role has changed quite a bit. And that's one of the things that's most important is that this industry has given me an opportunity to grow. So I wear three hats, really. For, for Jetco GTI, I wear two. I'm executive vice president of GTI, and I still retain my role as Jetco Deliveries CEO. So I'm working for the combined Montreal-based company in GTI and then, and then Jetco. My other business, which is not is not related, is I just speaking, writing, consulting in the areas of company culture and safety culture. But what keeps me going is the challenge. I mean, in logistics, every day is new. I like the new challenge. I love dealing with the people. I really enjoy trying to figure out how to be world-class when it comes to our clients. And I take very much of a people first, you know, sort of an employee's first approach. The more I can give our employees the tools to realize their potential and to help them come along, the better service I can give to my customers. I think a lot of us began our careers with that old saying, the customer always comes first. And I don't think so. I think that your employees have to come first. If you put your employees first, your customers will invariably get world-class service. I've heard different leaders with that philosophy. I mean, it's a, it's a mind shift, I think, for some, right? A lot of people thinking, hey, customer first, customer first versus employee. Yes, yes. Cool. Now, Brian, we did a little homework on you. We know that you also have a program called Making Safety Happen, and it's six online courses. Talk to me a little bit about that. What are these courses about? What's it in? I mean, it's, clearly it's about safety, but I'd like to hear from your words exactly what is in these courses, what it's like. And ultimately, what happens to somebody after they take them? Sure. Well, making safety happen really is, it's a course uh, teaching people how to build a healthy safety culture, right? If you're good, we're going to make you better. If you're struggling, that's okay. Been there, done that. I can help you uh, address some of the struggles. It's a pretty interesting concept. Each course consists of a module and, and the modules, you know, we'll talk about safety as a core value. We'll talk about how to create processes that your employees will follow. Uh, there's several courses on frontline engagement, how to get your front lines accountable, uh, how, to, how to engage them. 
every course has the, a module with a um, 20 to 30 minute presentations, PowerPoint presentation that you listen to, you watch, hopefully several people in your company will watch it. But then there are tools that you download. The tools are kind of do it yourself uh, tools that I give you to help you build the culture without you having to go out and invent the stuff yourself. And then once a month, I host an online workshop. So you have questions, come on, let's, let's talk about them in person. It's called reverse classroom. In other words, you participate in the online module, and then I'm there for live support once a month so I can answer your questions. Um, we just launched it about a month ago, and quite frankly, we just wrapped up our first online workshop, and it was a home run, and we'll be scheduling them throughout the year. There's nothing like it on the market, and I think what makes it unique is that I'm in the game. I'm not, you know, it's not like I did this 20 years ago. I'm doing it right now. I've got the same safety risks, the same challenges, and if you have any questions about it, just email me at brian at brianfilco.com uh, and I'll be glad to send you a description and speak with you if you have any questions. But we're off to a great start and I really appreciate you asking about that. There you go. If anyone needs help building the safety culture, you know the man to go talk to, Brian Filco. He's got it. So Brian, you've had an amazing career, worked at several different companies, built them up. What about for the next generation, the next generation of business leaders that are going to be in fleet management or any type of management? What are some of the ideas, some best practices, some ideas you'd like to share with them? I think that whether you're talking about company culture or safety culture, just remember it's about behavior. It's not really about who can write the biggest, fanciest handbook. And certainly it's important to be compliant and, you know, follow the rules and regulations. But you have to have an understanding and an acceptance that the rules and regulations in and of themselves won't really make you safer. Um, it's all about getting your people to do the right thing when nobody's looking, manage their own accountability. And to do that, you're the reflection. I mean, if you're not behaving in an accountable way, uh, if you're not communicating clearly, uh, you're going to have a hard time expecting the same from your team. So it, the focus is really on behavior. The other thing I think the next generation has to focus on much harder than my generation is just culture. And what I mean by that is a lot of us were brought up in an environment where, you know, the first strike is a verbal warning and the next strike is a written warning and then suspension. That's a completely ridiculous way of treating your team because, you know, it takes all the discretion away from managers and it doesn't allow for any judgment. Just culture, and I think this is really important for safety, but also for operations. You just ask this question. Was it an honest mistake or was it a reckless behavior? If an employee made an honest mistake, there's no reason to discipline. You, you sit side by side, you coach, you figure out what happened. If it's reckless behavior, I'm not really sure if I care about one, two, or three strikes. I mean, in trucking, if I have an employee that decided to go 50 miles an hour in a school zone, I'm not waiting for the second strike. One is all I need to see. You're gone. So we got to put judgment back into the HR and the management process in order to build trust and credibility with our employees. I would challenge the next generation of employees, uh, employees and leaders to look at some of the antiquated uh, ways that we've run companies, top-down, progressive discipline, and figure out better ways to run. You know, one of the things that transformed our company was 
this is, could be in trucking or any other industry like ours. Sometimes you have a silo between your frontline employees and your office team. We asked our drivers close to 10 years ago to elect a driver committee. And we brought the driver committee into how we manage and run the company. The chairman of the driver committee is highly involved with most decisions that we make. And I'm not saying you've got to go out and form such a committee, but I do think that what you have to do is figure out how do I bring my team, especially my front lines who tend not to get to go on the fancy trips into the management of our business in a meaningful, not like a coffee and donuts way, but in a real meaningful way to promote alignment. I think those are some of the things, right, that, that the next generation needs to focus on and sort of rethink organizations that, you know, past generations have designed, rip them apart and redesign them in a way that promotes engagement throughout. Because the more you do that, I can tell you from firsthand experience, the better financial results you're going to get and the happier customers you're going to have. No, I love it. So much of the conversation, what you've talked about has been about the investment in the people and which is, that's really what it is, right? Like you said, everyone's got the truck, but if you can build the best team, the best people, the best culture, then you inevitably will have the best service. Then you win. And, and we talk about safety. Can you imagine a healthy safety culture growing in a broken company culture? It won't happen. A healthy safety culture is nothing more than a subset of a healthy company culture. The healthier your business is, the healthier your culture is, safety will sometimes organically take hold. It doesn't need any magic. But if the business is broken and the culture is poor, I would just wish you all the luck on, on building a healthy safety culture because it will not grow inside of a, a broken company culture. It's all, part of, it's all one and the same. All right. Brian. What we want to do is we want to close the show and let the uh, audience learn a little bit more about you. We're going to ask you some fun questions to, okay. to hit, hit on. You ready? Let's go. All right. Ready? Question number one. You've been in shipping or you've been moving products for customers for a long time. What is one of the weirdest, unconventional things you've been asked to move? CEO of one of our clients asked us to move something and it was a flatbed load and we went to his house and picked it up and nobody knew what it was. It was a sculpture, I guess. And it was the ugliest damn thing you've ever seen. We didn't know if it was, we didn't know if it was like a, a clean out from a construction project. We, we didn't know what it was until it turned out that it was an extremely valuable sculpture. It was like, okay, beauty is in the eye of the beholder. So we all were looking at it, just trying to figure out what is it that we're hauling here? The weirdest, uh, I can laugh about it now, but talk about the need for communication. There's a place in Texas, Texas called Alamo, Texas. It's on the extreme southern tip of Texas, right at the Mexico border. It's a little city. And we were dispatched to deliver a load to Alamo. And we had a uh, client call up, very upset. So it wasn't funny at the time, asking, your driver's not there. So we called up. This is before GPS, before cameras. The driver said, I am here. And it turns out that the driver went to the Alamo in San Antonio. <laughs> he was supposed to head due south, very far south to Alamo, Texas. So that was a good wake-up call to, um, we got to do a better job communicating. I mean, common sense would tell you the Alamo doesn't have loading docks. But, hey, he was, he was at the Alamo on time where he thought he should be. Uh, just was the, you know, I can look at it now and laugh. But it was just, just points out the need to have crystal clear communication. 
I think that goes back to one of your things for the culture thing where it's like, if is, is this an honest mistake or is this reckless? Like you just, yeah. the way you just described it, right? You introspectively looked at it and said, oh, this is our fault. Like this yeah. is the organization's fault. This guy, <laughs> why didn't we, why couldn't we make this more clear for our, our team member? It was an honest mistake by my office team and by the driver. But the idea is now the next time it won't be an honest mistake if we're not a little more clear. <laughs> but that, that one you just got, you just shake your head and, point the driver south and get it delivered. Um, but yeah, you can't get, that's the kind of stuff where you live and learn. And as long as you refine your process based on it, you just, you move on. And what are you going to do? Write somebody up over that? I mean, that's crazy. That's awesome. Now we got one more question for you. You know, you kind of mentioned before driverless cars, probably a little bit too far out in the future, but at the same time, there's still a lot that can be done for you. What's a piece of technology or an innovation you'd like invented for you? right now that you think would materially help truckers driving fleet management one of the things like that i'd like to combine artificial intelligence in dome software to help me make better decisions it's it's out there people say they've got it but i haven't really seen it work to the full extent that it should what i mean by that is i'm getting data from all sorts of places my camera system my gps uh you know, roadside inspections at the state and federal level, ECM data from the trucks, service issues that I track in my operating system, being able to pull all that together to let me make faster decisions, not have to piece together different data from different systems. And then now that's the dome. Now let's bring in the artificial intelligence that would be predictive, that would say, you know what, based on this person's behavior, he or she is more likely to be a high risk to you um, it needs this kind of coaching uh, or may not be coachable. But there are so, there's so much great data out there and there's so much great software out there. I think the next five years to me is instead of the latest and greatest and newest, brightest, shiniest object, it's taking what we've got now and weaving it together in a way that's easy for us to manage. And like I said, I know it's out there. I know some people have, ha- have it. I just haven't seen it done as articulately and as you know, executive friendly as it could be. There it is. So if you're a young software developer out there and you can orchestrate all this data together for Brian, he wants a phone call. Call me. <laughs> <laughs> awesome, Brian. I appreciate you being on the show today. Did you have a good time? It's great. Yes, thank you so much. The Fleet is presented by our friends at Lytics, the award-winning video telematics and fleet management solution. Trusted by more than 4,000 fleets worldwide, Lytics is the next generation of fleet technology. Help drivers address risky driving behaviors like cell phone use, speeding, and inattentive behind the wheel, all while harnessing the power of video and data to thrive in today's competitive environment. From safety to compliance to fleet tracking, Lytics technology offers the industry's most comprehensive and customizable fleet management platform. Go to lytics.com slash the fleet to learn more today. That's L-Y-T-X dot com slash the fleet.